Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. And this week we're going to hang out in Diagon Alley properly for the first time as we yes. analyze Prisoner of Azkaban, Chapter 4, The Leaky Cauldron. You excited, Eric? I'm very excited. This is a wonderful chapter. It's a great chapter for Harry and his growth. He's a teenager. He's got more responsibility, more independence than ever before. And I just feel good because we're starting a new month of the year in April. It's already April. It's my it's birthday, birthday month. month. I'm really excited. So Aww. I'm glad you said that because today is actually somebody else's birthday. Actually, two people have a birthday today. Gretchen Forge, as they would like to be introduced. It's, of course, the Weasley twins' birthday. And I thought it would be a good time to actually recall an episode that we did, episode 508. So almost 100 episodes ago at this point. Oh, my wow. goodness. And it was how to tell Fred and George Weasley apart and more twin talk. And I actually thought this was one of the best episodes we've done just because we were really analyzing the text and how to tell the difference between the two. I never would have known otherwise. I think a listener actually recommended it to us, right? Yeah, I think, that's I right. think so, too. It was a really fun discussion. I think it was an episode that did pretty well for us because a lot of people wonder, can you tell them apart? What surprises me is people could even before our episode, which was a how to guide. Uh, but it it actually maintained a real consistency throughout all the books, which we cannot say about subplots like Four and Fortescue and other things we're going to talk about this week. But it was very much good, good on uh, characterization of these twins that you could see them the whole way through. Happy birthday, Gred and Forge, Fred and George. April Fool's Day falls on a Saturday this year, so I feel like it's easier to avoid the fake news headlines. I know. Mm. Have you guys been tricked yet? Uh, for like a split second. No, I was just thinking about no, that. No, not yet. Yeah, you got to be careful on social media today. I'll be honest, Andrew, when you didn't send the link to the to the show until like five minutes before, I was like, <laughs> is he going to try and prank <laughs> us? Is, is he... <laughs> Pretend you know, I overslept something. or something. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. This day no. reminds me of the Lairs of Lady Poe, which Eric knows very well. That was one of our <laughs> one of our funnest uh, MuggleNet April Fool's jokes. We It was the first time we joked about J.K. Rowling's post-Potter work. And um, it was an anagram for April Fool's Day, the Lairs of Lady Poe. And we needed a header image for the news post about it. So I had this parchment paper, which I've had for like 10 years. And I put it in my uh, roommate's typewriter. And I typed in the Lairs of Lady Poe by J.K. Rowling. And then I had this uh, spray blood. And I just spritzed it like twice on the page and took the picture. And it was like this header of a new J.K. Rowling book. And it turns out that probably inspired you know who to write um, the Corman Strike books. Robert Galbraith. But it actually, it fooled a lot of people. And I think it was picked up by Entertainment Weekly. <laughs> that was the best part. Well, and another great MuggleNet prank we did was pretending to shut down the site. I remember that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think that was Emerson's idea. That upset a lot of people. But that's why it was a good prank, because people really fell for it. And I think like you would go to MuggleNet.com and it said we're closing, but then there was an auto redirect. So after like 30 seconds, it auto redirected to a page that said April Fool's. It was really well done. Wasn't there another one where MuggleNet was merging with Leaky? I think so. For April Fool's Day? Yes. Yeah, there was. It was, it was like two years after the Memerson interview. Right, right. <laughs> We've kicked around some pranks for the podcast. I don't want to say what the ideas are, but maybe one day 
we'll do that. Especially if April Fool's Day falls on our release day. That would be fun. Yeah. Well, MuggleCast is ending. (laughs) (laughs) April Fool's. Uh Everybody listening on April 3rd or 4th. (laughs) Let's talk about some not-joke real news. Yes. Two Dan Radcliffe stories to touch on. First of all, some really nice news. Dan and his longtime girlfriend have announced they are expecting their first child. So congratulations to Dan and Aaron Dark. So can we call him Rad Dad? Oh, I'm my sure he God. will be a Rad Dad. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. That's a dad joke by itself. <laughs> And then another Dan Radcliffe news, he recently moderated a trans and non-binary youth roundtable for The Trevor Project. The series is titled Sharing Space, and it's a new video series from The Trevor Project that features roundtable conversations with LGBTQ youth moderated by adult allies. So Dan moderated the first episode, and then other people will be moderating the others. The episode premiered on March 31st, which was the Transgender Day of Visibility. Dan had a really nice statement, too, and I think it was pointed at a certain someone. He said, we listen to so many people talk about trans youth and hear them talked about so often in the news, but very rarely do we actually hear from these youth directly. It was an absolute privilege to get to meet and listen to this incredible group of young people. At the end of the day, if you're going to talk about trans kids, it might be useful to actually listen to trans kids. Yep. That felt pointed. Ooh, mic drop. (laughs) And I am happy to say that the video is available just on YouTube, on the Trevor Project's YouTube. It's about 21 minutes long for episode one. And uh, that's going to be a good series that I look forward to uh, catching moving forward. So great job, Dan. And by the way, I also want to mention there was some conversation about this on Twitter. Some people were saying, is Dan getting involved because of J.K. Rowling's recent comments in, in the last few years? And... I quote tweeted that and pointed out that Dan Radcliffe actually has been a supporter of the Trevor Project since at least 2009, if not Mm -hmm. earlier. He's been a longtime ally to the LGBTQ community. We really appreciate how outspoken of an ally he's been, especially with such a great organization like the Trevor Project, which offers a hotline for LGBTQ youth to call and get uh, support. I know that a number of the cast have been like vocal in their support of trans and LGBTQ uh, people, especially following um, the author's kind of stated views. But it's really nice and satisfying to see that Dan Radcliffe himself, you know, Harry Potter himself, so to speak, uh, is so outspoken. And he just seems to be this like incredibly talented, respectful person who wants to do better and learn it's just like he's the perfect figurehead for the right way of doing things and for this fandom and with that it's time to move into chapter by chapter and we are going to discuss chapter four of prisoner of azkaban the leaky cauldron and we'll start as always with our seven word summary discoveries are everywhere around this leaky <laughs> cauldron. <laughs> yeah, this one will be a uh, candidate for redoing. This yeah, might, this might yeah. be a redo. <laughs> I I apologize for anything my hand in that said, but at least we know what chapter we're going to be redoing then. Yeah, you know, as soon as I said R, I immediately regretted it and was like, I should have said abound. 
Discoveries abound. Ooh. <laughs> Put us in a much better direction. It's okay, we're all to blame because we all threw in here. Yeah. Yeah, so getting into, we mentioned earlier, this is really the greatest moment for Harry um, in his newfound independence. He didn't, he would not have chosen to kind of maybe leave the way, he always wanted to leave Privet Drive, but obviously kind of felt disgraced and like he might be expelled. Come to find that everything is fine and now he's given just unfettered access to Diagon Alley, has to stay in the alley um, behind the Leaky Cauldron, but he's taking in all of the splendor of like Wizarding World life. And the first thing that I wanted to kind of touch on is, do you guys remember being either this age or uh, close to it and just going into like a public place or maybe it's like the big city and just sitting in a cafe and feeling like total stranger to everyone, but you get so much of like the wider world. Yeah, I think the feeling that I've always enjoyed experiencing and Harry is too, is the feeling of solo travel. Often we're traveling with a companion, but there's also a lot of talk about how refreshing and freeing it can feel to travel on your own because you're kind of forced to meet new people. You are just kind of with your own thoughts, which can be a good thing. I love solo travel. It's having that independence, right? That Harry has likely never had before in his life because he grew up with the Dursleys and then he's gone off to Hogwarts these last two years. And so He's finally able to stay in a place by himself. He can, it's noted he can get up when he wants to get up, do what he wants to do. And uh, that's definitely uh, very freeing. I just remember like going into Chevy's or any of the places in New York that I never knew existed until we started going there and just sitting around. Like, even when you guys weren't there, like, if I just go up for the weekend, it just felt like I was part of the world in a really interesting way that I never had that perspective of growing up and being always around family or always around people I knew from my town. And how old were we when our parents started letting us venture out on our own within reason? Were we about 13? Like, like no. the trio is here. <laughs> Probably older. <laughs> well, my Probably. first big solo trip was to New York in 2005 for the Goblet of Fire premiere with all my MuggleNet friends. My mom still came up with me because she was concerned. And keep in mind, I was pretty close to New York. I was growing up in South Jersey. But my mom still came up with me and stayed in the same hotel we all were so she could uh, be a little close, um, but still give us a little distance. But that felt like a solo trip to me in that Mm -hmm. I wasn't staying with my mom. I was primarily hanging out with all my MuggleNet friends. And that was around 15, 16 years old. Yeah. You probably would have had more space actually in the room with your mom because wasn't there like 20 people staying in (laughs) the muggle net room? Probably. Mom, there's too many people. (laughs) Stay with you. That's really special. Um, Yeah, I would say around 16 for me is when I started going. I mean, any younger than that, I still had bicycle limits and I (laughs) couldn't ride my bike everywhere and, you know, all that stuff. But once you had 16 and the whole car thing changes everything. You just go anywhere at any time. You're like, really? I don't need to. You're basically becoming unmoored from anyone else's schedule. And that's what Harry is here. He spends weeks here just kind of learning the ins and outs, the nooks and crannies of Diagon Alley. Um, and it's glorious. He doesn't have to answer to anybody. The uh, shopkeeper, Florian Fortescue, is giving him free ice creams every half hour. 
It's yeah. just this wonderful Oof. like way to spend the summer and way to spend life. And he feels, I think, for the first time that he's truly part of the wizarding, the greater community. I think similar to Andrew, for me, growing up just outside of New York City, it was getting the opportunity to go in with friends, high school friends. So it would probably would have been around the same age as you, Andrew, like 15, 16 years old. And just going into the city and having that entire place to basically be your playground for, for the day, you always had to make sure that you uh, you know, were back by a certain time. But uh, you know, there's obviously a lot of cool things to do. Uh, in New York City, even when you're a teenager. So as a teenager, just walking into a Starbucks is exciting. It's like now, now (laughs) it's an everyday occurrence, but then it's like, oh my God, I'm going to check out these mugs. So contrasting this experience that Harry is having with the very last time they were all in Diagon Alley together, um, you know, Molly and Arthur were terrified that Harry had completely disappeared and messed up flu powder. They were very closely guarding all of their children just to go into Flourish and Blots and get Gilderoy Lockhart's books. But now, sort of even when Ron and Hermione do arrive and meet up with Harry, they manage to have a lot of solo time. I think it's just interesting. It speaks to like the growing up angle and parents trusting them more. But at the same time, there is also this supposed danger with Sirius Black this year. So it's kind of an interesting contrast that even Hermione and Ron are being given a lot more kind of freedom. Yeah. And there is a theme of freedom in this book, it seems like. Sirius seeking his freedom. Mm-hmm. Harry free to roam Diagon Alley as an everyday wizard and the freedom to visit Hogsmeade too, at least for others. I like that a lot. Freedom, but still somewhat imprisoned if you think about it, because Harry is free to roam Diagon Alley, but not to do anything else. Right. Sirius is seeking his freedom, but is still very much a prisoner within everything that's going on until we get to the end. And you could argue he's still a prisoner even after this book. He's a prisoner of the author. Yeah. But to kind of extend this, it's not necessarily when I say theme of freedom, I don't mean they necessarily have it. It's the pursuit of freedom, mm. some tastes of freedom. There's you different types of freedom or lack thereof in this book. Ron gets a type of freedom he's never had before, which is his first wand that's actually his. Ron, who is a smart character, now can spell from his own wand. Because his parents have finally decided that the broke ass one that nearly that nearly killed Gilderoy and nearly killed them uh, and erased his memory. It's finally important for Ron to have his own wand. So let's put on our little uh, glasses here and study up on what Ron's new wand uh, on what it might mean for him. It is 14 inches, unicorn hair and made of willow. Now, it is kind of funny here because these like the write ups on Juan Woods and Juan Coors that appeared at one point on Pottermore did come along after uh, these books were written. Uh, So I do think that the fact that this is like very connected with Ron is 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 maybe worth noting. But uh, do one of you want to read like Laura, do you want to read the the Willow description here? Sure, I definitely can. Willow is an uncommon wand wood with healing power. And I have noted that the ideal owner for a willow wand often has some usually unwarranted insecurity, however well they may try to hide it. 
While many confident customers insist on trying a willow wand, attracted by their handsome appearance and well-founded reputation for enabling advanced nonverbal magic, my willow wands have consistently selected those of greatest potential rather than those who feel they have little to learn. It has always been a proverb in my family that he who has the furthest to travel will go the fastest with willow. And by the way, that's uh, writing from Garrick Ollivander. Yeah, I think that this definitely speaks to Ron. Would you guys agree? I think so. I mean, think about Ron's character development over the course of this series and the fact that at the end of the series, we see this moment. It's like a schism between the trio where Ron has to break away. He has to leave and ultimately find his way back. Um, That really kind of... Uh, ties a nice bow, I think, on Ron's character development, apart from a, a couple of other moments that come later in that book. Um, but when we think about Ron as a character, you know, being someone who is very entrenched in this world, and even though he's a good person, he comes from a good family, there are some internalized biases that he carries with him that we've talked about on the show before, um, thinking about, for example, his attitude towards house elves. And then, you know, obviously later on in the series, we see how he's developed on that front. So those are just a couple of examples of how far Ron has to travel sort of like literally and metaphorically to achieve the development that we see by the end of the series. Spoken like a true Ron fan. I know I'm a Ron apologist. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. To me, I was like, "Mm, okay. Uh, Yeah. Has the most potential and is not very confident. Uh, Awesome. You know, usually unwarranted insecurity. That's Ron. Weasley is our king, though. And then unicorn hair. I'll read it real quick. Uh, Generally produces the most consistent magic and is least subject to fluctuations and blockages. Wands with unicorn cores are generally the most difficult to turn to the dark arts. They are the most faithful of all wands and usually remain strongly attached to their first owner, irrespective of whether he or she was an accomplished witch or wizard. And uh, minor disadvantages of unicorn hair are that they don't make the most powerful wands, uh, but the wood may compensate for that. And they are prone to melancholy if seriously mishandled, meaning the hair may die and need replacing. So the wand is kind of, I want to say like, vulnerable unicorn hair is, is is you know it's not the strongest but it's loyal that just seems like ron to me or anybody anybody would want that as a best friend as a companion wand i was wondering as we're here talking about ron's new wand do y'all remember what uh wands you selected in hogwarts legacy i do not i don't either and i gotta be honest i've never been into like the you can look it up you know. <laughs> what do you mean <laughs> yeah well, I'd have to, the game. But I have to go to the PlayStation and on the yeah. other side of the house. Oh, well, I mean. That's a deal breaker for me, honestly. You had a week to do it. I know. <laughs> I, I forgot to look. Well, I didn't pick it because so it's very much in the game as aesthetics, right? So I mm-hmm. have the curly wood type that looks like it can't, is a stick you picked up in the woods. Like I have that. I kind of didn't like any of the wand designs that they had in the game. And what I was going to say was I just don't really care for the intricacies of wands. I've never been into that as a Harry Potter fan. For me, it was actually like the the entire highlight of Paul, Pottermore was what we just read because uh, there were like all 10 of them or whatever that all got like a huge write up. And the characteristics assigned to these wandwoods are 
just like the author did with um, common mythology, brought over, you know, the sort of the properties of these natural materials that um, pagans and Wiccan folks and, you know, historically had been attributed. So the idea that Willow is healing goes way the hell back. Um, so well, it's that I think that's, that's why yeah. the, you hear that line from Ollivander, right? The wand chooses the wizard and then mm-hmm. it matches so closely to that particular individual, at least as we know them. So I looked up my wand from Hogwarts Legacy. The wood type is silver lime, core type phoenix feather, flexibility is whippy, and the wand length is 14 and a half inches. As far as the length, not much to say there. I I didn't find the writing. Bigger than Ron's. Well, <laughs> good for you. <laughs> Congratu- congratulations. Uh, but I, I think it gen- genuinely is said that the characters that were given shorter wands uh, by the author were the ones that had, or short fingers especially, um, like Umbridge, uh, had the least magic. There is an association between having a really dang long wand and being good at magic in the books, but... Don't need to get any more into that. That's a bonus muggle cast sometime in the future. (laughs) (laughs) After dark. So let's talk about more independence for the trio. Firstly, or in addition, Hermione chooses all by herself to get a cat. Yeah. Hermione receives Crookshanks. And this is kind of an unexpected sort of development especially for me because harry is so glad to have his friends back ron is teasing hermione about how many classes she's taking he has to take scabbers in for like a medical appointment like taking your pet in for like an exam is totally like a a next level responsibility type thing that you got to have it's like being a teenager is not all fun and games you got to go see if your rat's gonna die and um then this cat just totally straight up attacks ron and that's the one that hermione chooses to buy (laughs) it's like Okay, are they squabbling? Is this a, is this a is this a squabble here that they're having? It's the beginning of their budding romance. Yeah. Mm. But one of the things though, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier is Ron running around Diagon Alley with scabbers is probably not the best situation for Ron to be in. And I know we were talking about whether or not Molly and Arthur are doing the right thing here by letting Ron and probably other members of the Weasley family be out on their own. But is that the right thing for them to do, especially given what they know Harry and Ron generally and Hermione get up to? Uh, It seems like a risk to me. And the fact that they are Harry's best friends, presumably they could be easy targets for somebody like Sirius Black, putting the whole scabbers thing aside. Yeah, it does seem like something that you would expect Especially, I think, by today's terms, by 2023's terms, I feel like parents would be a lot more cautious. But it's interesting when we're thinking about our experiences of being allowed to go off and do things on our own. You know, this takes place in the 90s. And I don't know about y'all, but um, my parents' concepts of what was safe and like what was okay for kids to be doing on their own, especially if they were in groups, were just really different at that well, yeah. point. I mean, I was getting into all sorts of danger and still couldn't watch The Simpsons. <laughs> like, 
Although if asked to elaborate, I couldn't really do that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very much like everybody's parents are different. And you as a kid also, especially as a teenager, are kind of grappling with which rules to follow. Um, and then you get those parents that are like really permissive. They're like, well, you're going to like drink, for instance. So it's best you do it under my roof. And basically, like any group of 10 kids has each different type of parent. And so it's like a constantly organic, evolving kind of dimension of meeting your parents' expectations. I guess it's fair to say, too, that Diagon Alley is probably too public of an area for somebody like Sirius to just show up in the middle of. And so I'm assuming the Weasleys just felt as if Diagon Alley was a very safe place for their kids to be. And presumably the ministry had officials that were secretly stationed around watching Harry probably at all times. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people do know about Sirius. I was going to say when he was taken in, it was in a crowded street, but that was on the muggle side. Uh, you know, he showed up and had his attack on Peter Pettigrew or however the newspapers spun it. But yeah, Diagonelli's pretty safe for now. They actually think that Hogwarts is more dangerous for Sirius to get to, but I guess that's because Harry's going to be there all year. So let's talk a little bit more about Scabbers. There's actually a lot of plot foreshadowing here. Um, in particular, when Ron is getting him checked out, the uh, person at Magical Menagerie asks Ron if he has any special powers. And Ron's like, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> and it just turns out that Scabbers is pretty unusual. He's lived an unusual amount of time and can't even do any of the fun tricks that the, the other rats in the uh, menagerie can do. So it really sets up, a, it's more of a direct question. What is going on with Scabbers? What is Scabbers' deal? And it's done under the guise of just this boring uh, errand that Ron has to run, and it ends up having major plot uh, implications. Yeah, and the biggest hint, I thought, was when the witch at the shop said, ordinary common or garden rats like this can't be expected to live longer than three years or so, but Ron describes them as quite old. So this is a big hint that there's something very unique going on with Scabbers. Absolutely. Maybe we're led to believe that that's his power, that he's just <laughs> immortal. Yeah, <laughs> the immortal rat episode title. Well, I think the funny thing is uh, when she asked if he has any powers, he says, like, he's missing a toe. That's kind of cool. <laughs> that's a it's unique like, thing I add to my dating profile. Yeah. But again, that missing toe is the most important bit, literal bit of Scabbers and his current identity. And I think that we should have picked up on the fact that we are getting a lot of insight into who Scabbers is here, whereas probably in past books, he was just a passing reference. And so uh, the fact that Ron says that he wants to have him checked out because he thinks Egypt didn't agree with him, that's kind of the cover story for everything that's going on here. But if we start to piece the pieces of the puzzle together early, that would have been about the time that Sirius Black breaks out from Azkaban, and I'm sure Peter Pettigrew was able to get the Daily Prophet or something that would have alerted him to the fact that he was out, and now he looks a little pale, a little peak. And I love the like comparison to the other rats that are 
in the cage on the table at the menagerie. And it's mentioned, Eric, you said this earlier, that he doesn't show the faintest traits of interesting powers. So, you know, it, it, you, you're meant to feel bad for Scabbers, but he's obviously not who he appears to be. And Ron feels bad for Scabbers too, which is an interesting contrast. It's really the beginning of Ron being defensive of Scabbers in this book. We have to remember up until this point, Ron's been more dismissive of, of Scabbers, doesn't really seem to think a whole lot of him. Um, but, you know, now that he's at the point where like he has an elderly pet and it seems like things might be taking a downturn, Ron suddenly finds himself caring a lot more for Scabbers than we've seen him do at least overtly in previous books. The craziest thing for me is if you really like read over textually about what happens in the Manitoba Menagerie, Crookshank sees Scabbers and knows that he is a fraud and an imposter and like a person in disguise. Like you you have to believe like Crookshanks, who is part Neasel, is just wanting to root out basically the intruder. Uh, and so Crookshanks is doing, it's not, I think it's more than just here's a rat and a, a, the cat chases the rat. I think it's the, cause there's rats on the table that Crookshanks doesn't right. go for, you know, that, that, that's exactly what I was going to say is that clearly there are other rats in the menagerie and I'm sure other people have brought in rats before. And I doubt that Crookshanks just decided to attack that particular Animal, So it definitely gives us a little bit of a hint that something is up. The other thing that came to mind is, you know, this is now sort of our second indirect introduction to an animagus, right? We got Sirius earlier on in the book, mm. and now we have Peter Pettigrew. So we're slowly uh, kind of undercover being introduced to the fact that witches and wizards can take on animal form. I know we see it with McGonagall and Sorcerer's Stone, but it's not really made much of. But clearly in this book, it comes into play a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. All right. Let's take a quick break. Okay. So moving on to sort of later in the chapter, after we've had all of our teenage fun in Diagon Alley, it's a wonderful reunion with the Weasleys. Um, and there's a lot of really good Fred and George humor Tons of things we'll get to in sort of our connecting the threads and looking forward uh, to the bits and bobs and odds and ends. But the sort of second major thing I want to focus on is this argument that Harry overhears. So after dinner, um, Harry Harry goes back out uh, needing to grab something from downstairs and finds that essentially the truth is being kept from him. And Molly and Arthur are not in agreement of whether Harry should be told that Sirius Black is looking for him. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So Molly's position is that Harry is not ready. They shouldn't tell Harry that Sirius Black is after him. The less he knows, the safer he will be. She's the whole ignorance is bliss. Arthur, however, feels that Harry should be prepared, that he deserves, he has a right to know, and needs to know so that he could better prepare himself. I think I know the answer to this, but where do we fall on this issue? I guess I'm on Arthur's side. And I really liked the point that he brought up. I don't want to make him miserable. I want to put him on guard. He should be on guard. He should know that somebody is allegedly after him. I agree. I guess if I'm playing devil's advocate, though, 
in theory, Hogwarts or being in Diagon Alley should be a pretty rock solid security system for him, especially with the Dementors also involved. Have you read the last two books? <laughs> <laughs> well, Molly wants to pr- Molly wants to protect Harry forever, indefinitely, coddle him to the end of time, which is a very, uh, very okay and normal maternal instinct. But I think we all like as we grow older and see our friends become parents or become parents ourselves, we realize how futile that sort of is. You can't protect someone indefinitely from the way the world is. You can only choose those moments in which to say, hey, this, and if you level with kids and you're like, you tell them like, hey, this thing is bad and there are bad people and one of them is trying to kill you. Uh, ultimately, that you see the children may surprise you how they rise to the challenge um, or try and adopt a more, adult understanding of what was previously a simpler concept. So I, I just think kids have this capacity that if we trust them, they can kind of meet us where we need them to, but we don't love to take away that innocent view of the world. That's like probably one of the top the five worst things to do. I, I agree with Arthur in this particular situation. I, I think that keeping information from Harry does more harm than good. And this kind of is going off what you were talking about, Eric. Much of what Harry, Ron, and Hermione learn about the wizarding world right now is still heavily filtered through their parents and other adult authority figures. We see it with Fudge in the previous chapter, right? He's unwilling really to give up any information to Harry. And the reason why I I feel for him in this particular situation is he doesn't have to get all of the information, right? He just needs some of the information. And I think knowing that Sirius Black could potentially be after him would have a lot of things make sense to him about what's going on and also maybe put him on his guard to the point you raised, Andrew, right? Like You said don't give him all of the information, just a little bit of information? Yeah, as much as he needs to know at the time. Don't you hate when Dumbledore does that, though? It's a oh, little hypocritical. Oh, trap. Everybody abandon ship. This podcast is over. This episode is done. We cannot have. But, but Dumbledore has does it for his entire time that Harry knows him. Arthur's just looking to do it in this one situation. Uh huh. I yeah. mean, I was kind of just messing with you, but it's I okay think when Arthur I does detected it. a little bit of hypocrisy. Well, I think you know. Arthur's motivation is genuinely to protect Harry. And that's not to say Dumbledore Dumbledore doesn't. He does. I'm not saying Dumbledore doesn't want to protect Harry, but Harry is a piece. He's a cog in a much larger machine for Dumbledore. So the priority is, you know, the greater good and all of that, um, that he's, you know, Dumbledore is so down with. Um, So, yeah, I, I do think it is different. And something that I'll say that I think kind of makes this uh, a damned if you do, damned if you don't type situation is Arthur points out that Harry, Ron and Hermione are constantly getting into things anyway. And he thinks it would be better for Harry to have an awareness of what the dangers are so that he doesn't inadvertently put himself in Sirius Black's path, which makes a whole lot of sense. But To play devil's advocate from Molly's point of view, she's probably thinking, okay, we know that, and this is what they believe at the time, Sirius Black is the one who betrayed Harry's parents. 
So if we give him the hint about Sirius Black, even if we don't tell him explicitly, you know, what we believe to have happened with Black, Harry's going to be pissed. And think about what happened the last two school years. He's going to go looking for him. And unfortunately, both things are going to happen, right? As we see in this book. (laughs) So I, I just don't think that there was any real good answer here. But I also think that Molly is just genuinely trying to protect Harry and her kids. You know, she's probably like... Really hoping that none of my children have a near-death experience this year. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there's a theme here, though, right? That keeping information from Harry ultimately leads him into that situation yep. <laughs> anyway. So the less he knows, they think the better, but I, it just makes clear. him poke around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and to, and- def- to defend Molly and Fudge really quick, their point of view Yes, he has been through a lot in the first two books, but maybe that's a reason why they shouldn't burden him with this new information, like give him a little bit of peace. Obviously, he's overhearing this, so that's all out the window, but they're trying to give him, especially Molly, a little bit of peace after the hell that he's been through the first two years at Hogwarts. Poor kid deserves one normal year. (laughs) And he's not going to get it. And third (laughs) time's the charm. (laughs) These are the Harry Potter books. There must be suffering. (laughs) I'm looking at the Discord, and yes, it's creating a lot of great conversation here. But Hufflepuff's Badger says, I think Arthur knows that other kids at Hogwarts know the full story. Oh, great point. And Harry is just going to kind of find out. I mean, he finds out in this chapter more than he knew coming in. And there's clearly more details, though. Um, So anyway, poor Harry. I think we've just come upon what I think I might like the most about this chapter is that it's being kept from Harry, not because that's the right thing to do, but because you have these two differing positions of Molly and Arthur and they're his for intents and purposes that his guardians in this in this book at this time um, and throughout the books, the it does result in Harry getting this week of pleasure where he's just wandering around. He doesn't know people are after him. And although that does come crashing down at the end of this. He did get that week where it was like, okay, just be a teenager. And so it it wasn't it wasn't like everyone was on the same page of let's give Harry this week, but he did get it, and that was nice. Yeah. Well, and let's connect the threads a little bit here to Order of the Phoenix, because this is very reminiscent of when Sirius wants to loop in Harry on what the Order is doing, and Molly is really adamant about him becoming involved in everything that's going on. And so it's Molly in that very maternal instinct role. Uh, I think, you know, certainly we could talk about uh, how she loves Harry like a son. And we get that whole scene that plays out with the Boggart and them turning into one after the other, her children dead, and then ending with Harry. So I, I think that there's definitely... Um, connections to be made here between what's going on in Prisoner of Azkaban and what goes on in Order of the Phoenix. And it's all about leaving Harry out of the equation. And, and you know, in book five, you can argue the prophecies about him. He has more right to know than anybody else in that room. The whole Order of the Phoenix is about him if it's about stopping Voldemort and Voldemort's primary target is Harry. Like, Harry has never had more of a right to know. That only becomes more true later. 
Um, but looking at that connection too, and seeing that Molly remains consistent is satisfying as like a character thing. It's like, no, she'll always really try and protect him. And that's really endearing. As the kind of conversation ends, Harry reaches, Harry's, uh, you know, a little shook, but he reaches a sort of sense of um, understanding just that it suddenly makes sense why he's not being expelled from Hogwarts anymore. It expels why the Minister of Magic himself uh, was so thrilled and relieved to see Harry, why he dismissed all charges. And, you know, it's like, it just makes sense now. It's like that thing that you can't place like a puzzle in your head that suddenly makes sense. What I wanted to point out is because there's this difference of between Arthur and Fudge, um, where Fudge thinks that Harry should be kept in the dark, but nevertheless protected. Fudge actually assigns uh, vehicles to take not just Harry, but the entire Weasley family uh, to King's Cross the next day and Hermione. And what this may represent is the first time that the minister and uh, subsequently the ministry really connects Harry to the, the Weasleys. Um, because Harry has had, this is like the first time that the government essentially is intervening and, and identifies Harry as being the, like basically the Weasley's extra kid. Yeah. And, and it's a contrast to order the Phoenix where yes, Harry also receives an escort to King's cross. However, it's the order of the Phoenix that's doing it. And the ministry is not on their side Mm. where they clearly are here in book three. That was a nice kind of another moment. Yeah, and I would I would just add here that um, it's also interesting to look at how the chapter is framed. It starts with Harry loving his freedom. He's really enjoying his time in Diagon Alley. And it ends with this revelation and Harry being upset that he will not have the freedom to visit Hogsmeade. So again, this theme of freedom is running through not only this chapter, but this book. Yeah. I think Laura had another good connecting the threads, though. Oh, yeah. For this chapter. Yeah, happy to jump back to that. Um, I think this is a nice contrast between Prisoner of Azkaban and Order of the Phoenix. In this book, Harry is encouraged to sort of live freely within the confines of Diagon Alley where it's safe for him. Um, So there's very much this understanding that being in a public place like Diagon Alley, where there are lots of wizards around, is just safe. It's just naturally safer. It's the best place for him to be. Um, Then you go to Order of the Phoenix, where nowhere is really safe. And it's a really tenuous time because at that point, the ministry has not yet admitted that Voldemort is back. So you have Death Eaters and other, you know, bad operators kind of uh, operating in plain sight. Right. Because nobody's acknowledging the problem exists, which is super dangerous. You know, obviously things get worse over the course of the books, but at least when, you know, Death Eaters and Death Eater sympathizers are out and proud about it, they're easier to identify. But in Order of the Phoenix, you don't really get that. Yeah. And, and it, it ties nicely into that other connecting the threads with Harry needing to get support in order to get to King's Cross, needing to have protection. But that protection is not coming from the ministry. It's coming from 
the order itself, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're talking about like some of the most experienced witches and wizards who are accompanying Harry and the Weasleys, you know, to to King's Cross. And in this book, it's like the ministry thinks that Harry is priority number one. In book five, he's like, we don't believe anything he's saying. We don't believe what Dumbledore is right. saying, right? So good luck getting to Hogwarts, Harry. Yeah. And in both cases, the ministry is wrong about what the threat is. Yeah, that's a great point. You know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, time for a quick break. We'll get to odds and ends in a moment. Let's get into some odds and ends. So here we have a crossover from last episode, a carryover from the previous chapter where uh, Harry thinks the Grim is like very, very large and bear-like. Uh, once again, Harry sees the Grim. This is not great. He sees it on a, a book of omens inside Flourish and Blots. I'm so glad that, I mean, this is to set the audience's expectation up for dread, right? To worry about Harry, much like Molly and Arthur are doing. I am glad that the Grim ends up just being Uncle Sirius. Kind of reminds me of anxiety we all probably carry over worrying about certain situations. That's a great point. It reminds me of like, oh, my arm hurts and you look it up on WebMD and it's like, well, you have three days to live. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's also similar to the... You know, the more that you think about it, the more that you'll see those things. So I think, you know, the reality is that book was always going to be there, right? Mm. Um, And I'm sure there's other instances like that throughout Prisoner of Azkaban where Harry comes across the Grim. Like, I'm thinking about when he sees it uh, in the clouds during Quidditch. I don't know if that was a movieism, but again, like, is it really a Grim or is your mind taking you? down that pathway because that's all you've been consumed with over the course of your time uh, at Hogwarts this year. Yeah. Um, here's an on and end. Uh, Harry discovers the Firebolt. Yes. And, I mean, this is a whole thing. The Firebolt is great. I ruthlessly excluded it from our March Madness bracket. Um, <laughs> and Andrew was very upset. <laughs> I uh, was. But, but uh, interestingly... An excited dad is telling his son uh, in front of Harry that Ireland are the favorites for the upcoming World Cup, meaning the Quidditch World Cup, and that Ireland will be riding the Firebolt. Guess what happens at the beginning of the next book, everybody? It's the Quidditch World Cup. So I do believe this is foreshadowing. I was fascinated by the Firebolt as a kid. For a school project one year, I guess we had some sort of arts and crafts assignment. Maybe the assignment was like, make something you've read about in a book. So I made the Firebolt. I got a full-size broom. I made a, a box for it. I spray painted the Firebolt gold. I put a big picture of Harry on the box. I loved it. I think we threw it away because it was a pretty big, like between the uh. box and the broom, it was a lot. But we used to have it in our basement. And I was like, man, I did a good job with this thing. <laughs> Now you have a vibrating one, right? Yes, yes, I've upgraded, you could say. (laughs) (laughs) I need to bring that back out. I will say, though, it says something about Harry that he reflects back on the Nimbus 2000 and that he's won all of his Quidditch matches riding that broom. And so he doesn't need, because he could presumably easily buy this Firebolt. We're not told exactly how much it costs, but. Harry's got money, right? Like oh, he's, not, he's not he's not hurting. So 
he could go in there and get the firebolt, but he refrains from doing it. And I think that says something about him. But he is fiscally responsible. I mean, he does think in this chapter, I shouldn't spend this money. I need to save it for the future. He's a smart kid. Yeah. yeah. Was there something that as a kid, we saved up money and spent on that we kind of immediately regretted? Mine was a lightsaber. You can't even really fight with them, but it was like $200 at one of the first conventions <laughs> I ever went to. And it, it looked cool. But yeah, in the end, it didn't really do anything. And it was a lot of money back then. For me, it'd probably be something video game related. Nintendo 64, I think I remember saving up for, actually. I didn't regret it, though. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess that's the point. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I don't know what I bought and then regretted. Money just wasn't as important back then. So it's like, yeah, let me buy it. Why not? When you're not the one earning it, <laughs> like if if it's an allowance type situation when you're a kid. So none know. of us would have done what Harry did, <laughs> is I guess what we're saying. I remember used, uh, I used to go get on my bike and ride down to the west end of town. There was a card shop there, and I used to spend a lot of money on Pokemon trading cards. I can't say <laughs> that I regret it. Yeah. But, do you still have but, them? Yeah, I, I do have some of them. I, I needed to look because I'm sure some of them are worth money. That's a hot market right now over the last couple of years. It's been a hot market. I had a lot of Beanie Babies oh, as a yeah. kid. I don't know if y'all did that or I'm sure some of the listeners did. There were Pokemon yeah. Beanie Babies too. I had yeah. A I was in both. and a Psyduck. Same. Pogs. Crazy Bones. Oh, Pogs. man. Pogs. Pogs. We've just Pogs. isolated 80% of our audience. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, yeah. Didn't we no. talk about uh, Tamagotchis not that long ago? Yeah, too? we yeah. did. Yeah. yeah. That was a waste of money. <laughs> <laughs> it was good while while it was hot. Furbies. That was the pet experience. And and if they no. still existed or were easily gatherable, it would be the go-to thing for parents to get their kids before an actual pet. Yeah. Here are more uh, connecting the threads here. Uh, Arthur happens to drop that uh, Dumbledore is not fond of the Azkaban guards. And uh, this is not just, it's more than a passing reference. I think what we can infer here is that Dumbledore becomes similarly uncomfortable the way that Harry does, the way that certain characters who suffered loss do when presented with uh, close proximity to the Dementor. So I think that that line, throwaway, counts for Dumbledore's dark past, Dumbledore's serious, like, what would he see or hear? The saddest moments of his life when presented with the Dementor. So he has more to lose than many, I think, by being in their general proximity. You also don't know what the relationship ultimately was between him and his father, right? His father goes to Azkaban. Did he ever go and visit Percival when he was imprisoned? And maybe he had experience with the Dementors then. But I just think, and and yes, Andrew, I will recognize the fact that Arthur says that Dumbledore isn't fond of the Azkaban guards, but I do believe it's totally reckless uh, to place them around the Hogwarts grounds, knowing what they do to people. And it's, it's a major risk. I think you could easily swap out Dementors for Aurors instead. Great yeah. point. Yeah. <laughs> the Dementors were at Azkaban though. So I guess that's one factor but yeah it the the issue with the dementors around hogwarts quickly uh reveals itself in the next chapter when they come on the train and you see exactly why dumbledore would not be fond of having the, having them so close to students throughout the year 
Definitely. Who's guarding Azkaban now? <laughs> uh, More Dementors. some upstanding inmates uh, in charge. <laughs> well, uh, continuing our uh, number 12 references that come up uh, in the Harry Potter series, the room that Ron and Percy are staying in is number 12. And it's also the number of years in, that's referenced in this chapter that Sirius has been in Azkaban. Thank you for so, catching that. I didn't, I didn't catch yeah, that. Yeah, it's time. a good one. I also wanted to bring up, um, given where we're going in, in this book, that Hermione's taken a lot of classes. <laughs> and I was curious, do we think Ron was right uh, to call her out? Not just on that, but specifically for taking muggle studies, because <laughs> I think that's kind of the equivalent of a native, you want to say French-speaking person or Spanish-speaking person to take that language. To me, that's an easy A because Hermione could probably teach muggle studies. It is an easy A, but Hermione brings up a very good point. It would be fascinating to know how wizards perceive muggles and the history of muggles. So I actually completely understand where she's coming from here. Yeah, and she might also get more history about, um, you know, muggle and wizard diplomatic relations from the wizarding point of view that she would be completely lacking if she didn't take the class. So I get it. Yeah, I I I do agree with Hermione's viewpoint on it. But I will say the reason that it's not the same as the language uh, thing. And I learned this because I, I thought like, oh, native Spanish speakers taking Spanish like how easy for them but no if you turn if you grow up speaking like fluently spanish that doesn't mean you know anything about grammar writing like you know how we all took english grammar and had to do conjunctives Mm -hmm. and all that stuff it's the same for any language course so even if you speak a language doesn't mean you know it like in and out and front to back so i thought it was really valuable to learn that lesson of native speakers can still take that language class and get something valuable out of it it's a fair point Yeah, well, it really is, though, laying the groundwork for the fact that Hermione is taking more classes than she could possibly fit into her daily schedule. So we'll definitely keep an eye on that. And then just uh, wrapping up the odds and ends, I think this is appropriate since we were talking about Fred and George earlier for April Fool's Day. But Percy gets made fun of hardcore in this chapter. And I'm wondering, because we're only with the Weasley family for so much of a period of time, right? Presumably this goes on quite often. And so I'm wondering, as we think ahead to Order the Phoenix, given all the threads that we connected to that book, is it any surprise that he ends up the way that he does by the time book five rolls around? Could be a minor factor, Mm -hmm. but I don't know. I think the draw of the ministry ultimately is is what's really pulling him there that's the type of person he is not so much that he gets made fun of i mean people siblings make fun of each other quite a bit it's yeah hang on micah are you laying blame on the birthday boys for (laughs) turning ponds like gred and you're really going to come at them on the day of their birth he he gets made fun of and everybody except percy and molly laugh yeah so what does that tell you like even arthur even hermione well yeah I mean, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, I think. Percy is putting himself on this trajectory 
As we have to remember, he does bring some of this on himself. Not to say that it's okay to make fun of someone. At the same time, Percy is putting himself out there to be made fun of. He's kind of insufferable. And there are just social consequences for behaving that way. So I see Eric laughing at me. I'm not disagreeing. (laughs) I, I, I think it's it's a solid point. Yeah, I I think I think they probably have the effect of like bringing him a little bit more down to earth, which is which can only be a positive thing, not for interacting with family, but for interacting literally everyone else. Um, But but I do think the way that he is treated does inform how he behaves to some extent towards his family. Yes. In order of the Phoenix. Definitely. Because he's revenge. Yeah. Not nice towards Arthur. He's not nice towards Harry. Harry's extended family, but you get the point. It's a good call out. Hadn't really thought of that before. I think that concludes our discussion on this chapter. Sounds good. And it's time for MVP of the week. Well, despite the criticism, I'm going to give it to Arthur because Arthur is really looking out for Harry. And I believe his heart and his mind is in the right place here. I'm going to give mine to, we didn't mention it, but the Invisible Book of Invisibility, because it has, to date, completely eluded its purchasers. They got to use Revelio. Revelio. Oh, they just go every three feet. You're right. (laughs) That poor shopkeeper, though, Hagrid needs to, you know, buy him a gift basket or something. (laughs) Well, I'm going to give mine to Crookshanks for trying to wrap this book up early. (laughs) And I will give mine to Florian Fortescue just for being nice to Harry. I mean, bringing him Sundays every half hour. Mm. Imagine that growing up as a kid, just mm-hmm. chilling out in Diagon Alley, getting ice cream all the time. If you have any feedback about today's episode or the chapters ahead, you can send an owl to mugglecast.gmail.com or you can use the contact form on mugglecast.com. You can also send a voice message. Just record it using the voice memo app on your phone and then email us that file. We prefer that because it is higher quality. Or you can use our phone number, which is 192003Muggle. That's 192036844453. And by the way, before we get too many chapters away from this moment, I did mention on a previous episode episode that somebody called in as Ron practicing on the phone. So I thought we could play that now before we get too far away from that scene. And here it is. Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? I want to talk to Harry <laughs> Potter. This is Ron Weasley. I'm a friend of Harry's from school. Hello? Harry, is that you? Harry, call me back if you get this message. Don't let the muggles get you down. Ron Weasley, out. (laughs) Ron Weasley, out. (laughs) Who is this? Never call here again. That was great. Thank you, whoever did that. We don't have your name. All right. Well, now it's time for Quizzage. Last week's Quizzage question, a hag walks into the Leaky Cauldron and orders what? Haggis. Haggis. No, it was not haggis, although that was 
That wasn't a common wrong answer. Uh, the correct answer is a plate of raw liver. And uh, that correct answers were submitted by Sans the Wizard, age 12, a thick woolen balaclava, Artemis Fido Jr. the second, just chips or fries for me, thanks, Tom, Callie loves Quizich, Dobby's pet sock, Elizabeth, every day I'm huffling, fastest thing alive, Forrest the 10 year old, free Sundays every half hour, hero with a thousand fandoms, Hufflepuff plant lady, humongous big head, Isabella, Eminem, Noah the Ravenclaw, Otto the Hufflepuff, and Ravenclaw Kid. Here's next week's Quizage question. What is Professor R.J. Lupin's middle name? Submit your answer to us. We get to meet that character next week. Very exciting. It's a big chapter next week. Meet Lupin, Dementors, start of the year at Hogwarts. So get ready for lots to discuss. Submit your answer to us on the MuggleCast website, mugglecast.com slash Quizich, or click on Quizich from the main nav bar. And there's much more MuggleCast waiting for you over on our Patreon. Pledge now at patreon.com slash MuggleCast to receive instant access to many, 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 many bonus MuggleCast installments. You also get access to our recording studio. We record most Saturday mornings. You get access to our exclusive Facebook and Discord groups. And each year you can receive a physical gift like last year's wand. And that's just the start of the benefits. There's many more. So check them all out at patreon.com slash MuggleCast. We couldn't do this without you. So thank you to everybody who supports us. The Patreon is why we are a weekly show. And if you don't want to support us over there, there's other ways to support us. Apple Podcast users can subscribe to the show, right, within the Apple Podcast app for just $2.99 a month. There's also an annual discount if you subscribe through Apple Podcasts or Patreon, by the way. And if you subscribe through Apple Podcasts, you'll get ad-free MuggleCast and early access to each new episode. You can also make sure you're following the show for free in your favorite podcast app so you get every episode as soon as it's released. And we'd appreciate a five-star review if your podcast app allows you to and you're enjoying the show. You can also tell a friend about the show. And last but not least, you can follow us on social media. We're MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. So there's lots of ways to support us and we greatly appreciate any way that you can. And that concludes this week's episode. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.